Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. This is Paul Axton, and in this talk I'll describe the notion of traversing the fantasy. And of course what I mean here by traversing the fantasy, I think, is a description, an explanation that it can apply to Irenaeus's notion of recapitulation. I want to describe then what an early Christian understanding of recapitulation as described by Irenaeus might look like if we would translate it into a practical lived-out reality. That is, that I think if we employ biblical and psychoanalytic terms that actually we can arrive at what the idea of traversing of the fantasy, almost exactly what we have in someone like Irenaeus and the notion that Christ recapitulates the human life, that he goes through all the stages of the human life. And I think this is actually what we do then when we look at our own lives, that there is a redoing, a restructuring of our identity, that in some way we have a kind of misidentity that is undone and redone. And the way that that happens then is through traversing the life of Christ, and that process is a process of conversion in which we come to recognize that we've joined ourselves to a kind of empty identity, an empty category. This is the body of death, or this is the lie, this is the covenant with death that is described then in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the early church certainly had a focus then on the notion of deception and being delivered from a deception and the truth of Christ is over and against this lie and or over and against this deception. And so in this talk I want to describe the elements of this deception. The psychoanalytic language I hope is helpful. It sometimes may uh, be a bit confusing but it's nothing more than I think is taking place in a biblical understanding. And of course this is a development, my development of Romans chapter 6 to 8. And I think we can see baptism and, you know, walking in Christ as it's being described there. And we can see the understanding, the kind of traversing of the fantasy in chapter 7 where Paul goes back through and he recognizes that there's this inherent antagonism in who he is, that he's going to recognize that I do what I don't want to do, that the law of the mind is pitted against the law of the body. But this is a universal human experience, and it is one that, that Lacan and Zizek seem to think is a reduplication, or is rather they're reduplicating what Paul did in psychoanalysis. And so that's my goal here, is to lay out this traversing of the fantasy, how this might actually work itself out in a practical understanding. And a biblical understanding of this is just the exposure of the lie of what it means to imagine that we can posit a first-order reality outside of the prime reality of God. If we think of God in terms of a communion, a community, that God is who he is in Trinity, in this community, and who we are then is part of this community or communion, to displace this in a alternative communion or community or alternative language, that explains why a lie then is the displacement of God or why what we would refer to as sin displaces who God is. That is that 
this lie functions in place of the reality of God for us. The uh, understanding here is, though, that there is an inherent antagonism in this, that reality does not hold together for us, that in some way that this antagonism is covered over by the fantasy. And so the mental problems such as neurosis, narcissism, psychosis, delusions, personal pathologies, they arise then from our identity in in and through language that is trying to hold our world together. And of course what we're doing is assigning a first order reality to language. This, uh, I think you could say, is the psychological project of an identity formation, but in a sense this is the human project. Uh, this is the what Lacan will identify through the capital A of the symbolic order. But isn't it the case that out of this you know, symbolic system that we not only create our individual identities, but we create our corporate identities, the, the cultural identities. And so these identities are formulated around particular events or meanings. And of course, the idea here in a Pauline system or in a Lacanian system is that the dynamic that is at work between, if we think of the ego and the symbolic, is actually that these two registers are working in a very different way that if we just think about it in terms of that we are creatures that talk, but primarily we're physical, or we uh, can think of the symbolic order in terms of uh, a simply a game that is running its course. And, of course, our tendency, because this symbolic order or the human language is not grounded in reality, or that if we would assign it prime reality, then what is the reality of the created order of our physical bodies, the mortal condition? That becomes a kind of negative force. This is what Paul will call death, or what Lacan will call the real. That is, that it's a kind of absence. It's a disturbance, and this disturbance is the disturbance between these two registers. Of course, in a Freudian or Lacanian understanding, this is all we have, is that it's not that the difference if it were reconciled, could you know bring us some sort of personal peace because our very subjectivity is formed out of this difference, that there is no subject apart from the difference between our bodies and the symbolic order or between the ego and the superego. And so what we might feel of the oppressive order of the law, the symbolic order sort of acting on behalf of the id, it then creates for the ego pure frustration, pure fear. And of course, the fantasy is an attempt to weave together these, this antagonism. The fundamental fantasy is identity. It is the construct of our identity. But we might say that the fantasy then refers to the primordial line and through which uh, we would handle the excess that is life, that we would handle maybe our animal instincts, the bodily instincts, and how these then enter into the realm of thought or understanding. And so sin is what, this is in Zizak's picture, is what pushed the original humans out of the garden, that in a Hegelian or Lacanian system, 
the idea is that sin is actually what constitutes us as humans. The alienated subject is the only subject that there, that there is. And so because of the distance, the separation, that is, it is in that distance that is created through language, but also enables the entry into language. And so the original sin, as Zizek will say it, is the abyssal disturbance of a primeval peace. It creates the wound or cut in nature which constitutes human subjectivity. That is, the human subject is this womb. And the primordial lie poses a choice. And in a sense, we've already made it, uh, that we've already chosen the fantasy, the fantasy formation. And to traverse the fantasy is to go back and look at or to recognize that it's out of this dimension of negativity, of antagonism, of opposed forces in our life, uh, a kind of contradiction that we are constituted. Of course, in a Lacanian understanding, you can at least recognize this. There's really not much you can do about it. Maybe we could, we could say that in a fundamentalism, whether a Christian fundamentalism or maybe just any kind of fundamentalism, the tendency is to cling to the word, to cling to human language as if it is from the heavens, uh, as if it contained an original essence. And so the compulsion to repeat is a kind of attempt to gain the self and through the language. The compulsion is to obtain being or substance or essence or endurance. That is the neurosis that maybe we would return to certain words or certain sounds or certain exact rituals which repeated often enough we imagine will deliver you know, the divine essence of something or being, you know, to, to articulate it in terms of God. It may be that or it may not. It's just the, the condition. But the idea is a kind of consumptive feeding on the self that would presume to fill itself with the word, the inner essence of the self. This is the fantasy. This is the sense in which the fantasy constitutes the passage beyond nature into the pure symbolic order. And so that every, even ordinary things like eating and sex and human drives are written over then with this symbolic significance that takes on a, almost a kind of eternal significance. And so the finite world is taken up as part of a kind of symbolic order in which flesh, you know, this is the idea in scripture that flesh is not a problem except in an, as much as it would transform itself into an absolute. That's the problem, is that flesh would transform into spirit through subjection you know, to the word that we would make a religion out of human language. The antagonism may present itself culturally in many ways if we think about anti-Semitism, that you know, it is the Jew that is seen as the disturbance within culture, that if we could get rid of the, the Jewish foreign element in the culture that in some way we would arrive at a pure Aryan race. Well, that is a type of what we were or are always about, that there's always some foreign element, something within that becomes simultaneously a negative thing. There is this, even in Gentiles, uh, something more than Gentiles, another subject that I encounter 
in a kind of alien force, a foreign intruder. It may be in the culture, but it may be within me personally. Uh, this is what Lacan called the lamella, the amorphous intruder of, of infinite plasticity, a kind of alien monster which cannot be pinned down. It's That's the, the reason that anti-Semitism is kind of the archetype of every kind of racism or antagonism because the Jew is pictured as this kind of amorphous reality that, you know, within all of us resides the, the Jew. And so the fantasy doesn't resolve this. It just covers it over. It, uh, it covers over the antagonism, the phantasmatic figure of the Jew. What is it hiding? Well, it's, it's hiding antagonism. Maybe it's the hiding of the antagonism of class warfare or the disturbance in the culture of the social edifice. It is always covering over, and of course, the ideas that our fantasies are attempting to fill the gap, but fantasy of a Jew, well, that's, you really don't have Nazis apart from the Jew. The Jew is a key ingredient of the Nazi identity. The Jew as the enemy allows the anti-Semitic subject to avoid the choice that is inherent between working class and capital by blaming the Jew, you know, absorbing the wealth, absorbing the true Aryan sensibility mitigates the class warfare. And so he can advocate, as Zizek says, the vision of a harmonious society. Work and capital would create a smooth running collaboration if only we could get rid of this foreign element. So the foreign element, the, the, the Jew, the immigrant, the black, is always the uh, alien that in some way is the object of fear. But the fear then is really the avoidance of the choice. The focus on the fear then is a overlooking or obscuring of the real antagonism that is at work within each of us. And so our fears become a fetish that we almost need the fears the fear of the foreigner, the fear of the Jew, the immigrant, that it, it enables the holding together of the society or the individual. And so the anti-Semitic fetish figure of the Jew is the the last thing a subject just sees before he confronts the social antagonism. Uh, think here, you know, Freud is talking about a fetish, a fetish is the last thing a subject sees before discovering that the female is lacking in the phallus or the woman is lacking a penis. And so the fetish is the object that displaces the reality of the missing reality, the thing that in some way the antagonism between male, female, or the antagonism underlying the culture. At one level we know what is missing. At another level we act as if it is not missing. Every ideology or every fantasy allows the citizenry to, in fact, do both things at once. It's a, we, we know, for example, in case of the President of the United States, that he's actually the tool of multinational corporate interest. But we have the fantasy of the will of the people, that it enables us to act as if the President actually serves on our behalf. And so these fantasies function to hold together things that 
there is an inherent, if we would turn and look and recognize the contradiction, that the fantasy avoids that. The point of the fantasy or the point of a master signifier is the kind of ambiguity, the, the fantasy of uh, Stalinist Russia, the idea of the will of the party, or in the idea of freedom in America and democracy. We really don't know what the object is or what this thing, that we could get a grip on it. We've never actually seen this thing, and so they're empty. You know, this is uh, the whole controversy between fundamentalism and liberalism. There is an antagonism here, and the antagonism is definitive of the religion, in a sense, on both sides of the religion, that fundamentalists know that who they are is over and against the liberals, just as the way as an, uh, a Nazi knows what he is over and against the, the Jews, and so too the liberal knows what he is over and against the fundamentalists. And so if you take up a common area, this is the whole point in biblical studies that the historical critical method is actually an argument over the text and in one side of the text you know there's the argument uh, for inerrancy. There is a kind of you know in all of this there's always a kind of perversity in this. There is the the object that cannot be grasped always contains an element of jouissance or uh, the idea of an enjoyment, of kind of perverse enjoyment, but it's always something that the, the it's like the lacking phallus, that it's something you can't get a hold of. And so the inerrant Bible promises certainty in regard to truth, uh, almost an independent knowledge of God apart from God. And the idea is that we can know this truth, we can know it objectively, and yet we're always in the process that uh, we're always arguing for it in in a sense in a historical you know this is the way that the gospels are studied that what happens in many uh, harmonies of the gospels the impetus behind the entire study is simply to make the case that one could harmonize these gospels and you never get to the theological point or the doctrinal point in the gospels themselves and so we've made a science of biblical studies, of historical critical studies. We've reduced it to a kind of historiography in which we're continually in the mode of proving of what we have. And the mode itself, in a, in a way, substitutes for theology, substitutes for living it out, that we have this claim for an objective absolute truth and the Bible then becomes a fetish, or just the idea of the Bible, not the Bible itself, the idea of what it is, an inerrant book, in which we know it contains an absolute truth, and yet it's one that we're always arriving at. It's not one that we necessarily have to live, it's just if we can carry it around and hold it, and maybe hold it in front of a church, and uh, it, as an object. We know that, of course, this is over and against this whole notion of a kind of pride is the, the very impetus behind the fall, the notion that you have absolute truth, and the claim, a kind of excessive claim that we have this inerrant Bible. There is the, it contains the, the inherent contradiction of the antagonism between the knowledge of good, the knowledge of evil. Now we have the knowledge of fundamentalism and the knowledge of liberalism. The contradiction 
It just is a circulating system that makes of the Bible a kind of ideological object. Believing it, it it's almost satisfying in and of itself. Uh, not to live the Bible, not to follow Jesus, not to come to a theological understanding, but if we could just prove the inerrant Bible. It's a nothing, you know, what an inerrant, think of it, no errors, it's a negation, it's a negative statement, it's not saying anything positive, but it's a kind of fantasy, a kind of sublime object that we can imagine that we have absolute truth, but of course we can't really test it, we can't even to live it, of course, is, is not really the point, you know, and you need the liberals in all of this, the scientific study of the, the book, the challenge, the continual challenge of the atheists, the liberals, continual need to do more historical critical studies, the continual need for apologetics. It's those liberals, it's those people driven to undo it that we're warding off and they become the object, the object petite a in a Lacanian understanding that sustains the fantasy. We need the liberals like the Nazis need the Jews. The uh, diversion then, the antagonism is displacing, you know, any kind of lived reality. And so the, the fantasy diverts us and that's always what is happening in a fantasy. If it weren't, you know, if, if we could obtain it, it if it weren't for the obstacle. The Aryans could be a pure race, the Germans could be a pure race if it weren't for those Jews. America could be a, you know, in the white racist understanding, could be a pure nation running harmoniously if it weren't for black people or foreigners or the immigrants. If the fundamentalists could just get rid of the liberals, the liberals in some way have in a sense, the jouissance, there is this, you know, this antagonism that uh, they're the reason we don't have it, and at the same time, there's a kind of resentment. What they seem to actually be stealing from us is the idea of, you know, this is the, the enjoyment, the, the, the desire, the missing thing, uh, that somebody else has what we don't have. The, the desire just keeps us pursuing being better at, you know, we continue to read, we continue to do historiography in an attempt to prove, of course, the negative, to prove no errors, which is, in a sense, a kind of impossible proof to begin with. This thing erupts, and of course, that's what we're, we're experiencing in the modern period, that people have either seems to erupt with people like Bart Ehrman or people who in some way seem to have traded sides or with the emergent church that postmodern understanding uh, that they've seemed to have given up on reason altogether and so we need to, to uh, you know enter in all the more strongly if we think in terms of this political moment we need to double down on our racism we need to double down on our anti-immigrant policy we need to double down on our support of Trump because the other thing is that this whole notion of American freedom or the wedding of religious right with the political right would in some way un become undone. There is this inherent contradiction. You could take any example of this. David Fitch does a wonderful job of going through that. You go through all of the elements of evangelicalism 
And what you end up with is all of these elements that each of them can function as a kind of ideology. The very thing, the very object, the very pride that is driving the notion of an inerrant Bible or of a kind of absolute truth is not really about the truth, but it's about owning the truth. It's not about living in the truth, but it's a power thing. It's being in control. Uh, it's about possessing the truth as an object uh, instead of the truth possessing us. And so the inerrant Bible can act as a fantasy, and I think it is the fantasy, very much like hell, you know, eternal torturous existence. It's a kind of quilting point, or it's a a larger fantasy that can grasp us. There is a kind of perversity in all of these things in which the underside of, of the understanding, eternal torturous existence of some, buys us the, the there is an inherent pleasure to be had in this. And so the fantasy of freedom or in the American context, or the will of the people, or in biblical inerrancy, or accepting Christ in your heart. In, in a way, the, the fantasy functions best as a kind of nebulous reality. You don't quite know what that is, but in, in a way it holds everything, like uh, in American democracy, or in conservatism, or fundamentalism. We all know we believe in the same way, in the same thing. And that's what unifies us. And to give up that thing, whether it's the fetish of freedom, the fetish of the Bible, the fetish of an eternal torturous existence, we, in a sense we give up the unifying element to, to the religion. Uh, the, the signifier then, you know, there's a kind of distance between the reality, the, the signifier uh, is always elusive there's always this desire for it. We can't obtain it. This is the this is why the best, you know, advertisements. Coke is it. We don't quite know what that means, but apparently, whatever it is in Coke, that there is a fundamental being to be had. That people who drink Coca-Cola obtain it, whatever it might be. Barack Obama talked about you know change. We we believe in change. Well, we don't quite know what that is, but it is the idea that anybody who is in some way oppressed or in somebody who is feeling frustrated or, well, change is uh, feeds into that, or Donald Trump's Make America Great Again. We, made it, we kind of have an image of that greatness of some time in the past in a kind of Edenic, uh, original America, in which all things ran smoothly, in which all children were good, and all politicians were honest, and a, a kind of imaginary America, of course, without racism, without trouble, America, an America that never existed. That's the America that we're in pursuit of, an America that we're going to bring back in making America great again. The danger, of course, is that as we believe in these things and we hold to them, as in this present political moment, we become complicit in uh, ruthless systems. And I think this is why evangelicalism ties up very nicely with the ideology of this present moment, that the ruthlessness of pursuit of the object, I mean, to give up on this object, is to really lose your religion. Th this is why I think that uh, Donald Trump or the political right wing 
everything's at stake in this for many people. And so there is a kind of element ruthlessness in the antagonism that we're willing to cover over. And of course, we are compensated, the believers in this thing, we are compensated by the belief and an enjoyment, of course, that we don't, the jouissance that is there. We see it in Donald Trump. He seems to enjoy, he's able to to grab the pussy or, you know, grab the money or get the thing, and he does it on our behalf. So, too, you know, it's, in a sense, he embodies the antagonism and this kind of, there's always a trauma in any kind of fantasy, a founding event, that we've in some way lost something, and the fantasy covers over that loss. And the object that we hook up onto, the object petite A, you know, whatever, the, the liberals, the Jews, whatever it is, they, it, that's what's stolen our enjoyment. That's where the, the lost object has gone. And if we could just defeat that, if we could overcome that obstacle, in some way we would obtain the desired uh, thing, the pleasure, the fulfillment, the completeness, the melding into the one. And so to escape this thing that has bound us, the, you know, the pursuit of the lost object, in, in a sense it's a relinquishing, it's an exposure of this dynamic that we're always in pursuit of some excess, that, uh, something that is missing. Something, you know, the alienated subject is always seeking an original piece. And, you know, the original sin is an original disturbance of a, a kind of primeval peace. And so we're looking to heal the wound. And, of course, the, the human subject is this wound. But what we have to recognize is the lie, the primordial lie that would seem to keep the dynamic going. And f so to traverse the fantasy is to expose then the, the thing that has happened to us, to expose this lie. And of course this is Paul's way of describing what it might mean to die in Christ or to that I you know, have died with Christ, it's no longer I that live. It's uh, Paul's way of describing uh, putting off the body of death. And the idea is that we've joined ourselves to an absence, we've joined ourselves to a kind of futility. We've joined ourselves to death. We've missed reality and we've let this lie displace reality. The antagonism then that is inherent to this futility is undone in the body of Christ. And that's really what chapter 8 of Romans is describing. And you know, there is an adjoining, but it's in Christ. It is a belonging to Christ through the Spirit and there is still the idea of the resurrection power, but of a fulfillment that is being carried out, that there is the idea of being adopted as a child of God, that it is a present progressive, being joined to the love of God. Yes, there is a process to it, but there's also a recognized reality to it that is being fulfilled. And so where we would understand the fundamental fantasy, the lie of sin, that really is the engine of death. But in this sense, being joined to God, you're entering into a, a, a communion with other people in which you're no longer in pursuit of a missing object, you're no longer in pursuit of an absence or a negation, but you're receiving. There is a, a reception of truth, of life. It's not an abstraction, 
you know, a kind of philosophical truth, but it's a life-giving sort of truth that specifically counters the, the death-dealing lie. And that's the, the understanding that uh, this is the implication of my whole argument about Christianity, about what Romans is about, but, but really the Bible. That the Christ did not die to meet a requirement of the law, but Christ died to displace a deception, to undo a fantasy. Uh, certainly this fantasy or this deception involved the law. That is what the law is. It acts as a kind of fantasy for us. It is, you know, maybe it's the law of biblical inerrancy. Maybe it's the law of human freedom. The idea is that we attach ourselves to this empty thing in which we imagine there is life without obtaining life. We hold to the fetish of the law, and it is death itself. It's not that the law, you know, this is often the way that atonement theory is read, that Christ died to meet a requirement of the law, but Christ died to in undo an orientation to the law that I've been describing here. Though I'm using the language of psychoanalysis, it is a return to an early Christian understanding that Irenaeus and others will talk about, that there, we've been deceived and we, in some way we have to recapitulate, we have to undo the lie. I think that undoing of the lie, that recapitulation, it is a, a marvelous way to talk about here what we're talking about, the idea of traversing the fantasy. And so I'll conclude this section and we'll take up next time then with the final development of what this new life might look like. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.